Hey there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast, episode number 29. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is sponsored by our friends over at Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity, inspiring you to make using any medium that you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, dyeing, and more. Plus, they have loads of curated gifts, books, craft storage, and apparel. Right now, they're offering the U.S. Craftish listeners free shipping with the code VickiMakes. Just use that at the checkout when you shop at makersmercantile.com. This week, I spoke with Abby Glassenberg from her Massachusetts studio. Abby is a writer, activist, and the force behind the home sewing blog and plushy pattern company While She Naps. She's also the co-founder, along with Kristen Link, of the Craft Industry Alliance, a trade association for craft industry professionals serving makers, designers, suppliers, and pro-bloggers. Abby and I talked about the humility that motherhood can sometimes bestow upon us, her choice to veer from the path that her formal advanced degree from Harvard laid out for her to instead go rogue and become a creative entrepreneur, and her passion for advocating for the fair treatment and livable wages of those of us in the craft industry. I found Abby to be insightful and speaking with her to be really interesting, and I'm happy to share our conversation with you now. Abby Glassenberg, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. You started... Well, you had a very formal education. Like, and it's really as formal as it gets. I mean, undergrad at John Hopkins and then master's from Harvard. But then you kind of went rogue and entrepreneurial and started this whole new uh, career, which has become um, a huge success over the past decade. And it's that that I want to start with. And I wanted to lead with a quote from an interview that you did in 2015 to support a keynote speech that you were giving at um, at Midwest Con, um, Midwest Craft Con rather, and um, just because I think it's something that people need to hear, but isn't necessarily inherent in a lot of people. Um, the focus of your speech it was the importance of following your own interests, as though it was um, as though it's your job. And you said, by designing and writing every day as though it were my job, it became my job. I really feel like this idea can apply to whatever you're interested in, if you pursue it with discipline. Um, and you're not afraid to share it, even if it's raw in its raw and early stages, you can make that thing you love the most into your career. Will you speak a little to that discovery and that change and sort of course for yourself? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely believe that that's true. And um, you're right that I had kind of a, a, a formal education trajectory toward being a teacher. Um, and that's what my you know master's degree is in. And I did work on doing that for a long time. I did teach for America and I taught um, public school here in Boston. And then I had children and decided to stay home with them and very um, sort of accidentally just kind of found blogs way back in 2005 and started one named it while she naps, which was just the things I was making, crafting while my, you know, baby napped, um, really with no intention, obviously, if I chose that name of having a business or it becoming my career. Um, I didn't even know, I don't think any of us knew at that time that that was even something that could happen to somebody. Um, but what I did when I began while she naps was sort of doggedly pursue the things that I was most interested in, which is what I was talking about in that speech you quoted. So, you know, I, um, I really like crafting and I always was a maker and I had bought a sewing machine when I was 13, um, with money that I'd gotten from my bat mitzvah as a gift. Um, and I had that same sewing machine. I had brought it all over the place with me, you know, um, from apartment to apartment and, I honestly didn't really know how to use it that well. My mom uh, didn't sew and my grandmother actually didn't sew either. They were like um, really staunch feminists and um, just sort of rejected all of that stuff. And um, and anyway, I'm a feminist too, but I kind of reclaimed it, I guess. And so I um, 
finally kind of had some time while the baby was napping to sort of figure out how to sew. And with blogs, I was able to connect with people who knew what they were doing and ask questions and get the right books and learn how to do it well and started making stuffed animals and dolls, which is what I love to sew anyway. And that's what I would post on my blog. And just following that interest and posting regularly, I always feel like a blog is like um, it, it's like an open mouth, and you have to constantly feed it. And so I would motivate to finish projects, even if they weren't that great. Like I said, they were in kind of a raw state and weren't really finished. But I was like, I need to finish it, so I have something to post on the blog uh, tomorrow, you know. And so it held um, you accountable. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which I I really appreciated. And so. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just started doing that and I kept doing it. And I think that that's the other piece is, is sort of to not stop. Um, so it's been, you know, almost uh, 11, I guess it's been 11 years now. And uh, I still have that same blog and I'm still sort of doing the same kind of thing, which is to say, I'm still pursuing what's most interesting to me. What that means has changed over time. So in the very beginning, it was all different kinds of crafts. Then it became stuffed animals. And there was a period there where it was a soft sculpture. And I, I wrote some books. Um, then I started becoming more interested in the business side of things. And I learned about business and wrote about that. Um, and then more interested in the industry, the crafts industry as a whole, um, and learning more about that, which is, I guess, where I am right now. So, um, so it's, you know, the subject of the posts and um, of my interests has changed, but the essence of it is following those interests and, um, and not giving up, continuing um, all this time. And as you said, it's become my job, which was not something I expected at the start. But the more you do, the more people think, oh, she knows what she's doing. And then they ask you to do it for them and they pay you for it. So that's what happens. So this was a discovery process for you and not necessarily just sort of an inherent confidence that you had in yourself from the get-go that whatever you wanted to do in life, you could make happen. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was really that. I definitely did not anticipate being a business owner. I was never one of those kids who was like, I'm going to grow up and have a business. You know, that was not something that I thought about, um, being an entrepreneur and, you know, that's something I'm really interested in now, but it wasn't necessarily part of my story, you know, up until recently. Um, so no, I don't think it was necessarily like confidence. It was just like, wow, this is really cool that we can all kind of publish our own magazines via these blogs. Um, and you know, I'm gonna, I love doing that. I love writing. I love making things. It's perfect for me. Um, it also provided me with this community that was global and, um, was more like me than the people mm -hmm. who actually live in my own community necessarily. Yeah. Um, I did eventually find, um, artists and makers who live in my town. I live in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Um, and I did eventually find them, but it took a while. And so I was living here with a baby kind of alone. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously my husband was here too, but we, I didn't know that many people. I didn't know any, you know, artists and makers here, but this, you know, blog connected me with people like me everywhere who knew more than me and could help me learn to sew and then eventually learn how to turn sewing into a business. Um, so, yeah. Doesn't it feel almost like blog, now social media, um, sort of anything internet-based is a way to crowdsource your own inspiration, accountability, community, whatever it is that you need to be yeah. you in a way? Definitely. I mean, I think you get um, immediate feedback, which is so lovely. And I mean, I write for magazines and that's just a really different kind of feeling because you do a, a bunch of work and then you wait, you know, three or six months or whatever for the magazine to come out. And that's a lovely thing to see it in print. But I'm sort of addicted to the instantaneous feedback that you can get online. Yeah. 
And it's great for, you know, you put out a photo of something that you're making and you can see the reactions that people have and the questions that they have and whether they like it or not. You can kind of gauge that a little bit. Um, so that is great. And then also I, I like to write, you know, articles about the industry and what's happening and sometimes pushing for some change that I feel should happen and, um, and sort of hearing the community reaction to that and bringing together somewhat of a collective voice at times is just lovely and can happen online in a way that would be really hard for it to happen in person. There's been a few guests on this podcast, um, Ray Hookstra from Made by Ray and, well, me personally as a host, who also uh, sort of embarked unwittingly on a career in the craft realm post-motherhood. Motherhood was really the sort of impetus for this new thing, not new anymore, but this thing that we ventured on. Um, it seems to be not that uncommon as a way that we've sort of like, no pun intended, sort of crafted a life that would work for the kind of parent that we wanted to be. Um, and I wanted to, to know if you would speak a little to about sort of those moments of becoming a new mom and, you know, whatever feelings you were having or, or the space that you were in where it felt like, because you not only, you know, started a blog, but you started it in a different, you didn't start a historical blog or anything that was related to your chosen profession. Like it truly was a departure. Um, And I wanted to know if you would just talk a little bit about sort of how that kicked off. Oh, sure. And, you know, I, I, like I said earlier, I make stuffed animals. And so people often would be like, oh, you must make them for your kids. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, it's like the cobbler's kids, right? I know that's how it is with mine. Like, they get nothing. <laughs> they get the weird prototypes, but they don't get the medicine. Because, um, because the blog and also the making, um, it really is for me. Yeah. And I think that when you become a mom, um, first you know, it's a wonderful thing, obviously, in, in a million different ways. Um, but it it also can be a little bit boring. And I think people don't necessarily talk about that all the time. But I do think it's true. Being home with just one baby and you as an adult, um, and that's it during the day, it's, you know, it's kind of boring at times. There's nobody to talk to. Um, and I do remember feeling that way. And so the times when she would sleep, I would sort of, you know, sort of jump head first into this stuff that was really about me and was interesting and fun and exciting and, um, and so, and sort of like gave me something to think about during the times when she was awake um, and we were out and about doing things and, and, you know, driving in the car or whatever, and just sort of something to mull over that was separate and was different from, you know, taking care of a baby is also very selfless. Um, mm. You know, you get up when you don't feel like it. <laughs> You're still tired and you have to get up because the baby's crying and you have to feed the baby. And I had a, a baby who was um, four pounds, nine ounces at birth. So oh, she wow. was really hungry yeah all the time and then of course you feel like pressure and guilt like you got you got to fatten that baby up it's all on you it's all you girl yes and she was a super fussy baby so Uh. you're sort of always on you know have to walk around the house with her in the sling and all of that um and so it's a lot you know it's a lot of physical work and it's just um it's a lot of selfless work and so having this other thing to do it saved me. It made me feel like myself again. It was a place where I could escape um, without ever having to leave the house. And so I love it because sewing is really quiet. You can pick it up and put it down. Um, and blogging is the same way. You know, you can save the draft and come back later. And so for me, that combination was my way of um, of reconnecting with myself, uh, my, my old self, my pre-mommy self. Um, and it still totally is that. Um, and and I love now, I have three children. Um, that baby is now 12. And I have a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And well, actually, she's six. Um, and she, today is her birthday. Um, so Happy she's birthday. six today. Yeah, I know, it's amazing. So um, 
So, so, but today, you know, they, I'm still able to be a stay at home mom. So, uh, we don't have a nanny. They come home from work, from school and I come pick them up, you know, um, and, uh, I'm right here with them for homework and after school activities and, and all of that stuff. But I'm also able to work because I don't have a commute. You know, everything's right here at home. Um, and it just sort of really suits my lifestyle. Like it allows me to do both of those things and, do them to the standard that I would want to do them to. So I'm really grateful for that. I think something that you said is really key that I want people to hear. And that is that following this passion, even if you didn't consider it following a passion at the time saved you. And I think it's really important that women in this case, it's mothers, but I don't necessarily think that it has to be because you feel isolated and bored and and less than challenged Uh, mentally as a mother. I think it could be in a job. It could be in a relationship. It could be whatever. If you take the time to feed that well, and whatever that means for you, even though, especially as mothers, we can feel like any time for ourselves feels selfish, what you're doing is you're bringing some of yourself back so that you can then give more later. And it's key. And that maybe at minimum, you're saving yourself. At maximum, you're creating this life for yourself that that paints the picture that is the landscape that works for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I think that's definitely true. And it's definitely not just for moms, for sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, I've worked jobs in the past that have been really boring and you needed that same same sense of escape. Um, And I also lived for a period of time in the Mississippi Delta, which is a really isolated part of America. And this was before, this is before the internet. And so (laughs) there was really nothing. So I've, I've lived in places where you needed an escape too. um, And crafting was definitely that escape then too. How do you have the discipline to write and craft like it's your job when you have, you know, three babies? Yeah. You know what? I think I'm just a self-disciplined person. I know that's a disappointing answer, but I think that that's (laughs) perhaps just the way that I am. I, I'm like, I I never as a kid, like turn my homework in late. Like I always turned it in on time. Even if it wasn't perfect, it was always in on time. I'm just like structured. I'm just conscientious, like by nature. And if I, I like, it helps me not feel anxious to just work ahead and have everything done. Um, that's just how I, I am. I'm also like, a. am kind of an efficient person, I guess. So Mm -hmm. that like when I was in college, I never, pulled an all-nighter like never I would just get my work done and then go to bed you know (laughs) like I just never I'm not a huge procrastinator I guess um so you know I I think that that's part of it uh I have a huge to-do list that helps me a lot and it's nothing fancy it's just like a a yellow legal pad that's sitting right next to me right now where I write everything down that needs to get done. And, um, I'm very specific on there. So it's not like, you know, um, you know, create an e-course like that would be way too big, but it's like really small steps. Um, and then I can cross them all off and that helps me a lot so that it's always waiting for me. And there's always something on there that I could tackle within a time frame that I'm allotted, whether that's, you know, eight minutes or, you know, two hours, there's always something on there that I could work on um, and just sort of power through and, and get those things done. And it's, I feel a lot of satisfaction with that. Um, and so I think that helps. You mentioned that you uh, are able to be still a stay-at-home mom, work-at-home mom, um, and, f- and that that was important to you. And I want to talk a little bit about the importance in creating the career that works for you in your life space. I feel like there are so many for us as women, there's so many sort of expectations and rules about what a good mother is or what a, what the right way to do, you know, to work in a career or have, have, you know, children are. And it's really important to me that, that, these conversations talk about choices, um, about what works for you. I was speaking with Lisa Anderson Schaefer, who's a, who's an artist. And for her, it was really important for her to be physically present. Um, I, I've spoken to other people that, that wanted to, you know, be able to travel, but still have, you know, allotted time where they were home no matter what. For me, you know, I, I was, a, a you know, 
a latchkey kid like most kids in the 80s. And that's when I, all my shenanigans happened. So for me, I wanted to be home, home when those kids, especially the teenagers, got home. And so I've chosen to not, you know, tour around the world to teach. I do most of the stuff online. And that's something that I think that is uniquely now um, as being a possibility. Um, but I, I also think that it's it's important that we don't define it for each other, if that makes sense. What did, what was important to you when you were sort of creating this path and as you keep creating this path as far as work-life balance goes? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I've really learned having been a mom now for 12 years is that there's a lot of ways to do things well. And I think in the very beginning, I was like judgmental of other moms, you know, it was like really easy to be like, well, I, you know, sleep trained my child. So she sleeps this number of hours and you didn't. Why do we do that to each other? (laughs) Women are our worst enemies. I made all my own baby food and you did, you know, whatever. Um, And as I've had more children, frankly, I've sort of become more humble um, because I think it's easy in the beginning to take credit like, oh, my daughter has a wonderful vocabulary because I read to her all the time and, or, you know, she speaks so clearly, you know, because we speak to her like an adult right. or whatever. And then, you know, I have now a child who actually has a speech impairment. So that had nothing to do with anything, you know? So I think the universe was like, hit him. I know. <laughs> and it's like, well, my daughter eats all kinds of ethnic food and spicy food because that's what we serve at dinner. And then I have a child who's extremely picky eater and won't eat any of those things. So anyway, it just sort of has taught me that um, there's a lot of ways to do things well. And um, and what works for you may not work for somebody else. And that doesn't actually mean that they're doing it wrong. (laughs) And also what works for one child may not work for the for the others. Yeah, yeah. So I feel grateful that I had three extremely different daughters Mm -hmm. who have taught me that. Um, for sure. And, you know, I, I always sort of um, push against this idea of work-life balance because I, it kind of, to me, implies that you want to um, kind of escape from work or like set work down. And mm. that's like the best thing to do. And like I said earlier, like for me, work is nourishing. Um, and so I don't want to put it down. I don't sort of get upset if I'm working on a Saturday or something like that. Like I work around everybody's schedule. And so if it turns out that, you know, on Sunday afternoon, everybody's otherwise occupied and I have two hours to myself, I'm happy to work during that period of time. And I don't feel like I should do something different because that actually is nourishing to me. Um, And so I guess... Don't you think that is balance though? Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, You're working like you're working when you need and or want to and you're not when you need and or don't want to. And I've had jobs before where I just had dread on Sunday nights, like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. You know, that Sunday night feeling of like, here we go again. And then that Friday afternoon, like jubilation that you were off. And I just don't feel that now. Like it's, it's all good, you know? And so I guess maybe that is balance. Yeah. And don't you think, you know, you spoke to feminism earlier. um, And don't you, don't you think that 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 being able to make these statements that this is working for you is kind of the most feminist outlook that you can have that yeah. being a feminist doesn't mean you have to like our foremothers might have thought like abandon your bras and like not do anything that's considered quote unquote women's work what it means is that you can now make the choice to do what works for you Right. I, that's what I, I see feminism is all about choices, being able to make choices that work for you. Exactly right. How, how, are, how will you instill feminism in your own daughters and maybe comparatively to how it was instilled within you by your mother and grandmother? Well, that's a good question. I mean, my mom, um, my mom is, is like I said earlier, she's really, she's really something else. She's a feminist for sure. And she, um, you know, she was a writer when I was growing up. She, she wrote for the Washington post and for the LA times and, um, and she worked from home, she freelanced. And so I kind of had that 
model and she was really outspoken. Um, my dad had been in the Peace Corps. And so the two of them um, definitely sort of instilled in me a sense of, of um, you know, needing to, to push for, for social justice and, um, and that sort of thing. And so I, I think that I still have that uh, same sensibility when I look at what's happening in the world and talk to my kids about it, um, just reacting to what I see happening. Um, so, so I think that that still goes on. Um, like my middle daughter is really interested in math and science. And so helping her to find um, places that she can be a girl and be really good at math. Um, mm -hmm. and feel good about that has been good for her and um, a challenge for me to, to sort of find those places where right now we're in the process of looking for a good camp, summer camp to do that. Um, so you're already looking at summer camps. I, yes. If in the Boston area, if you don't book summer camp wow. by like December, you are done. <laughs> Wow. I know. You just blew my whole mind. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm not even sure what we're doing for Christmas break. Uh, there's a lot of people who live here. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a crowded yeah. place. So it sounds like you're not necessarily, and, and maybe this is a luxury, even though, you know, given where we are sort of like socially and politically, it feels like we've taken huge steps back recently. Maybe in some ways that's a huge, you Never did you, you know, speak the words about, you know, instilling feminism in your uh, in your children, the sort of sentiment that I think probably, well, I, at least I was, and I'll take the leap that you were, were, was instilled in us, which is you can do anything that boys can do and maybe better. Like that doesn't even, that's not even part of the definition, it sounds like. So maybe that's, that is progression in overall yeah, feminism? Perhaps. I mean, we don't have any boys in our family except for my husband. So, um, so we're all girls and, um, yeah, so maybe that is part of it. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's just, um, you know, just feeling confident that you've got everything you need to, to pursue what it is that you're interested in. And, you know, I, I hope that I model for them, like you can build, a business, you know, my kids do help me now, um, especially the older ones with my business at times, like over Black Friday, they were like packing orders and that kind of thing. And, you know, they see, I show them like the balance sheet and um, talk about payroll and, you know, all of those things so that they can kind of see, like, uh, you know, I, I sit in the front room of our house and, and I, I build this like by myself and I hope that's inspiring to them. And, um, you know, it's some, some feeling of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Do you get any pushback from the feminist community, given that you and I are both in very stereotypically, you know, women's work-based industries? I'm in knitting and crochet, well, craft in general, and you in sewing and also craft general. Do you get any, do you feel any pushback from the, from the community at all? I don't know. I don't know that I feel, I don't know if like I interact that much with like sort of the feminist community as a whole, but I will say that I do find it hard to explain to people who have no context, you know, who have no understanding of, of the craft industry. Yeah. And, um, and like, to me, the whole thing is incredibly interesting and really important and a great sphere to make social change. And there's so much to do. Um, and I love like developing expertise and learning how everything works and all of that. And so when I go, you know, to like, um, you know, preschool pickup or whatever last year. And, you know, people ask like other moms, what do you do? And I try to explain it and just sounds sort of like trivial or something. And right, I have trouble right. feeling that. I'd be like, I'm a sewing pattern designer. And they're like, oh, that's nice. Like, it's just sort of hard to say like, no, actually it's really important. You know, but so. at least when you, at least when you add the word designer, that actually seems to give a little bit of clout to a title. Like if you just say, you know, sewist, or if you just said, uh, you know, I, you know, I sew plushies and, you know, sell them or whatever it is, it, it's like almost like you have to add that other title to the end. I have this conversation all the time with people about how we, we have to add titles to elevate the overall societal view of the crafts. Because yeah. inherently people are not, 
it was still in this day and age, I don't know about you, but if I said, you know, I'm a professional knitter, I'm a professional crocheter, you know, I tell the story all the time, I get the sort of like proverbial pat on the head, like, oh, my Nana does that. Right. But if I say I've written 12 books, hosted three television shows or whatever, all mm -hmm. of a sudden you can almost see their posture change because there is value in those things. And that's the thing that I think that we really need to work hard to change because there's so much value in craft and not just for what we're putting out. But, and I think that this is kind of what you were alluding to, and if not, please rein me in. But I think that's something that people really miss about the opportunity of working in craft and much like any other creative industry, you know, music, acting, you know, poetry, whatever, is that if people are crafting, they're creating, if they're, to be creative, there has to be a certain amount of openness for that creativity to flow through you. If you are more open, then you are going to listen to what people say, maybe people that don't necessarily think the way that you do. And if you are there and you're also working on something together, so you have that common bond, you may have conversations that you would never have in a safe space that would not normally be there, which ultimately is going to be better for us as a community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I sometimes find myself like I'll say it sort of depends who I'm talking to. But sometimes I'll say I have a sewing pattern company. And even that word company as a qualifier, Absolutely. it almost right like is resonant with like a startup or something like that. And so then the other person's like, Oh, you run a company. Okay. Right. And then they can kind of latch onto that and it has value. Um, for sure. Yeah. So, and I think uh, people shouldn't be afraid to use those terms. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. And it reminds me when I um, like sign contracts and things like that, I have to write down the name of my company, which is Abby Glassenberg Design. And then I, I write my title, right? You have to put your title in and, and I'm like president, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it's like, you know, however silly that might feel um, for the scale of business that I have. It's true. That is what I am. Um, and so, you know, take some pride in that. And if it if it does help other people have some gravitas toward your, you know, profession and, and understand it, take the time to understand it better, then okay. Social activism was a part of your childhood, you mentioned, and and, and still seems to be um, important to you today. I've seen you over the years make many pretty ballsy like posts about sort of injustice within the industry. It, talk a little bit about why being a voice for change in this way is important to you. Oh my gosh, it is really important to me. It's perhaps the most important thing. And um, yes, I mean, I, you know, I, in college, I wrote my senior thesis on desegregation in the Baltimore City Public Schools. And um, I was in Teach for America. And I, I definitely am a person who really holds strongly to the belief that you know, we can, we can push for change to help people be treated better and have, um, you know, fair wages for their labor, better contracts and all of those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I think that making stuffed animals has been kind of a blessing for me in that it is a little bit outside of the mainstream of sewing. Um, you know, sewing generally is about sewing garments, about sewing quilts or home deck, um, and stuffed animals are sort of like, hmm, where does that fit? You know, um, it, and because I sew with fleece primarily and felt, um, I don't ever need a fabric line uh, with one of the major fabric manufacturers. I don't aspire to have a line of thread that's branded to me. Um, so I guess in a way, I have some freedom or I feel internally. There's not the same risk for so, partnerships. Yeah, I don't, I don't Interesting. Exactly. I don't take ads on my blog for this reason. So that if I feel that a particular company um, is, you know, not necessarily a bad actor, but has made a move that is potentially not um, favorable to designers, I'm able, in my way, to do what I feel is best to advocate for designers um, and or to educate consumers 
about what's happening. And if it means burning a bridge at that moment, I don't want to do that necessarily, but I'm okay if that's what has to happen as long as we can make things um, better for everybody and for the community as a whole. And I've been really, I would say like my proudest moments over the last um, 11 years have definitely been when we have been able to make that change. Um, and, and it has happened and there's been some really good, um, some really good things that have come through the, through writing about and shining a light in those dark corners for sure. That's actually how I first learned about you. I think, I think it was, um, oh gosh, it's been several years now, well, at least a few years. And, um, you wrote a, an article or it actually may not have even been an article. It may have just been sort of like a quick post about, um, Hancock fabrics. Oh, right. Um, and just, that just, was, it wasn't an article. It was just like an Instagram. Yeah. Oh, um, and yeah. just to give uh, listeners a little background. So we are, we're still in the wild west of the interwebs and definitely in the way that marketing works and will work over, you know, the, the next several years. And and part of that is many companies have now moved from print advertising to more influencer type advertising, which means bloggers. But there hasn't been, there's not really a manual of any form that, you know, gives it as a guideline for what to charge and what to pay. And because we're in a create, we're in creative industries, as we've mentioned before, there's less value in our work. And so for a lot of companies, especially a few years ago, really sort of were big on, you know, hiring, well, I can't even say hiring, getting bloggers to write about their products in exchange for quote unquote exposure, um, and there was a, there was semi value to that for a while in the same way that swapping links had value, you know, a decade ago, but after a certain point, it, it, it sort of became kind of slave labor esque and, and, and still happens sometimes with in a one-off situation. But if I remember correctly, Hancock Fabrics was looking for regular bloggers to, you know, blog weekly, I think for, You'll have to fill in the blanks, but I think it was for zero pay and only the free supplies to make what they asked you to make. Yeah, I think that was that was right. And it was some years ago, but but that seems seems right. Talk about your response and then I would love to know what the fall through because when I read that, I was like, whoa, like she's she's ballsy. And at the same time, I was like, that's a bridge burned. That's a bridge. You've just explained now that you don't, because my my career is so, is so heavily like rooted in partnerships that that is that's just not the sort of like voice the the voice um, that I choose to have. But at the same time, I was like kind of high fiving you because it's not okay. And I would love to know what the like what the repercussions, if any, and and what the aftermath like entails. So right, I mean. Honestly, so it was really a very quick thing that I did. It was not a a long post. Um, And I would say there were no personal repercussions in that I was never going to try to apply to be a blogger for Hancock Fabrics. Um, So I wasn't like rejected from them or something like that. I never had um, worked with them in the past. And then they went out of business. So (laughs) I think that they were trying to make a last gasp effort to increase some sort of online presence. Um, I think they were probably in financial dire straits at that point. And there wasn't really a way for us to necessarily know that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure what happened except that, um, maybe it attracted your attention, which was for better or for worse at that moment. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think they probably did, did get a few people who, who applied and maybe did, um, create some free projects for them. I don't know what happened to that website even now since they have gone, they went bankrupt. What so. about what about within within the community? Do you feel like there was a sort of more of a dialogue happening after that? Um, you know, I think that it's important to point these things out as they come up and they do continually come up. Um, it happened with um, glue dots. There was a, not when I actually did write an article about, um, they were, you know, sort of asking same kind of things, asking bloggers to create projects for them, for their blog in exchange for free glue. 
And um, that was okay, except because there's times, hey, when that kind of exposure is really actually good for a blogger, especially if you're new on the scene and are trying to get your your name out there. It's certainly, like we said with motherhood, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to do things right and do things well. Mm -hmm. And that may work well for somebody at a certain point in their career. And that's okay with me. I definitely did free things like that myself. Um, And I don't judge people for doing them, except that what they were doing, Glue Dots in this case was doing was um, they were actually using some of those projects in their circulars, um, in their advertising mm. paper, you know, print advertising that was then distributed at the major craft store chains. Um, and and so, you know, the my in my estimation, the photographer of those projects would get paid, the graphic designer. For those projects would get paid but the actual crafter who made right. the project didn't get paid and to me that was the step that went too far and so when i reached out to them they did release a statement back to me basically saying that you know these people who make these are stay-at-home moms and they want to do it for free they like getting free glue and i was like well that may be but you know you as a company need to set a higher standard and that's not fair yeah and i think that i'd like to stop and talk to these moms <laughs> <laughs> Lean in, mother, mothers. I want you yeah. to hear something. You have value, and it's more than glue. <laughs> now, that's not to say that's not to say that like if you want to just craft this and they want to use it on the blog, and you're like, I'm just happy for the free supplies. Cool. That's not to say it doesn't work. But if if they've seen such value in your work that they're willing to circulate it to what I'm guessing is at least a, a you know a hundred thousand circulation, you know, and that's being conservative, they've then added value to it. So you deserve to have that value added to your work as well. And it's okay. And it's really important that you know that you've got value, ladies, and it's, I'm sure there's gentlemen out there too, but let's speak to the ladies for a second. And that you stay on top of it and that you're, you're your own advocate. You'd be your own advocate for your kids. So you, you deserve that same advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's not necessarily picking on one company. It's more sort of looking at things as they unfold and, um, you know, being on top of it, being making sort of pointing them out as they happen and explaining why it's problematic because it may not have seemed problematic from the outset, or you may not have even noticed that it, that it existed, but bringing it to light, sharing it with a wider audience and pointing out the parts of it that are problematic. I feel like that's something that I can do. And to be fair, although I don't think that that's the case over these past couple years, but to be fair, several years ago, it it may not necessarily have been a company's intent to take advantage of free content per se. It's really was just kind of a new, a very new way of marketing. And everybody was kind of just feeling it out and like, hey, maybe somebody would. Now, now we're to a point where influencers are a thing, bloggers are a thing. And so it's no longer acceptable. But I think there was a time where it, there was just sort of like a little bit of like maybe naivete on the company's point of what, of what they were doing too. Yeah, absolutely. And and believe it or not, there are still companies who have that same life today. But you're right, back in back in, you know, maybe two thousand. Right, but it's no longer as acceptable as a sure. as an occurrence. Exactly. And, and so how and do the- we as as business leaders or as industry leaders and and you as one of the co founders of the Craft Industry Alliance, how do we affect change positively without setting everything on fire? Is it by educating both companies and independent contractors? Is it by setting standards ourselves? That's a great question. Um, you know, and I don't necessarily know if I have there. I don't think there's probably one answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that sort of the role that I feel that I can play in that at least is um, to to write an article that first of all is shared on a big enough platform that a lot of people see it and people who matter and who can actually, you know, influence the change Um, and to do it in a way that is fair. So 
um, I always reach back to the company or the, the person or whomever who is the subject of the article for comments. So for example, not long ago, um, F&W had changed their contract for teachers at Yarnfest, which is one of their big events. And um, there was a lot of writing up online among lots of uh, knitwear designers who had taught at Yarnfest in the past saying, you know, um, we de deserve to be paid fairly, which is absolutely true. And I so appreciated um, reading about that from each person's perspective. And so what what I did is I just reached out to F&W and directly um, and again, I have no interest in teaching at Yarnfest, so it was okay if they came back and were really mad at me <laughs> and never wanted to speak to me again. Um, and I was able to talk to um, or bring it to the attention of um, John Bolton, who's now in charge of Interweave again. Um, and he didn't know that the contract mm. had been changed. He's new and he had just come back to the company and wasn't even aware. Um, you know, he might have seen the articles that other people had written saying we deserve to be paid fairly, but um, the step that was missing was actually sort of confronting the company itself. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so I did that, and I also spoke with lots of the designers um, on the phone, and uh, and just wrote a piece where I was like, here's here are the exact changes from the you know the contract from year to year, um, and here's why those changes aren't fair to the teachers at this event, um, and you know we feel that we you know these teachers do deserve to be paid fairly and treated fairly, and. Um, within just a few days, they revoked the new contract, wrote new contract terms that were much, much more fair and um, and gave that new fresh contract to all of the teachers. So it was certainly a communal and collaborative effort. It was a topic I never would have been aware of even if these other, you know, knitwear designers hadn't written about it. But I do think it, it was um, a lot of people who work in the industry, they can't burn a bridge. You know, they can't necessarily... Um, make a company upset with them because if they do that, they lose out on opportunity and that opportunity is their livelihood. Um, and I totally understand that. And so I guess I just sort of feel like, well, I, I'm happy to take the fall. And there was actually a period of time um, when there there have been companies that have blacklisted me in the past. Um, and I'm happy to say that that actually over time, We've been able to resolve those problems, and um, and I'm back in good graces. So <laughs> I, I've I've gone up and down, and and I'm sure there's many people who who are still furious about various things. But but I guess I I still I definitely still feel like it, it's been worth it um, because you know that Yarnfest um, example is not the only one. There there's been several others where we've been able to to renegotiate contract terms, get better pay for instructors. Um, and I'm really proud of those instances and of the community's voice coming together to make those things happen. When you co-founded the Craft Industry Alliance, was that the sort of like base level intention for the overall organization? Or did you see a general need for both a community and sort of educational hub for craft industry professionals? It was all of those things. So that's one piece of it. But I mean, advocacy is one piece of it for sure um, of any, and it, it, you know, Craft Industry Alliance is a trade association for craft professionals. And so it's not just advocacy though. It's also um, business uh, education and business fundamentals sort of learning about and understanding and getting the resources to grow your business, to make sure it's established properly, to um, figure out next steps. And whether that's, you know, hiring, insurance, uh, all of those things that are sort of complicated and maybe snuck up on you when you started, you know, um, sewing stuffed animals years ago mm -hmm. and then didn't realize that actually this was going to involve um, accountants and <laughs> all kinds of lawyers and all sorts of things. Um, and so it's really helpful 
helping people to have that the foundation that's strong and the growth um, path that they need to make um, their business healthy and serve them well in the long term. So that's a big piece of it as well. Um, and it's also community. You know, we have um, online forums and um, monthly gatherings that are actually happen online. Um, and so through those uh, experiences, people feel supported and feel like there are people who understand the position that they're in and are helpful. Um, and I feel supported by them as well. So certainly it's all, you know, it's, it's community, it's, it's education, it's advocacy. And we're also very excited in January to be adding member benefits as well. So we're hoping, and we will be offering things like um, insurance discounts and um, uh, all of those things coming going forward. So that's an, an, a, new, a new thing. You mean you're working with insurance companies? Yes. To be a, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we actually are working with um, a company that helps trade associations offer member benefits. And so they um, package all the different kinds of member benefits together and um, and create something that's catered just for your trade association. Will this be at all affected by um, President-elect Trump's promise to uh, get rid of our current um, health care system? I can't speak specifically to that at this moment, but um, but I guess I would say whatever uh, situation we end up in, you know, where where um, freelancers and contractors and small business owners need um, both health insurance and also business insurance, this um, you know company will help to serve. It's like a white glove service, and so will help to help figure out what exactly you need and how that you can afford. Well, Abby Glassenberg, this has been fascinating. Thanks for fighting the good fight and for sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, thank you so much, Vicki, for having me. I, I really had so much fun talking with you. For more information on Abby's projects, photos of some of her work, and links to the articles mentioned in this episode, just go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. While you're there, also take a moment to post a comment letting us know your favorite method of receiving creative inspiration and information from. So that could be newsletters, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever. We just want to know. All posters will then be automatically entered to win a copy of Abby's ebook, How to Create a Powerful Email Newsletter, a Comprehensive Guide for Creatives. Entries must be received by 10 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, December 14th. Thanks again to our sponsor, Makers Mercantile, who would like to give Craftish listeners free shipping site-wide. So if you need craft supplies for your holiday gifting, now is the time to shop. Just go to makersmercantile.com and use code VickiMakes at checkout. That offer is good through December 15th and valid for the U.S. only. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Tune in again next week for the last episode of the 2016 season. Our guest is illustrator and educator Andrea Pippins, and that episode will go live on Thursday. As we plan the 2017 season, we would love to know who you'd like to hear as guests. So if you have a suggestion, please email it to podcast at vickihowell.com. Until next time, I wish you a week of creativity while you hand make holiday gifts or do whatever it is that feeds your creative soul. And don't forget to take a moment every day if possible to breathe in, craft out. Bye.